Alexa, create a radical ad for my campaign. Okay, let me write you a sensationally unoriginal ad. Don't let AI butcher creativity. Unify over 100 content creation services under a single hourly-based plan with Bunny Studio One. Speed up production with our platform's quality-vetted video editors, voice artists, designers, and writers. Our humans get your projects done. No tedious coordination needed. Get your 10-hour free trial at bunnystudio.com start. Hey everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. Today we have a special guest, Max Boot, national security expert, a fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, Washington Post opinion columnist, and author. His most recent book is called The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right. But one book that, that I've read of his that I just think is a really special insight into history and where we are and, and its impact later on. It's the road not taken about Edward Lansdale and the Vietnam War, which was finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Max, um, thanks for thanks for being with us today. Delighted to be here. You know, for the last several weeks, we've seen the GOP becoming more and more anti-democratic, fully embracing being the party of Trump at all costs. We've had several guests recently, including Matthew Dowd, who called it uh, what's happening in the party is sort of a growing black mold and really thought you'd be a great person to talk about what's going on. But but more importantly, how do we get out of it? How do we we stop this? And your last column really sounding the alarm, the, uh, the Republican plot to steal the 2024 election. But it's also happening right now as we enter 2022, 14 states, if you pointed out, already passed voting restrict restrictions this year and but your your solution was calling for passing hr1 but now with mansion coming out this weekend saying he won't support it are, are we stuck what's what you give us sort of where you think things stand today w with mansion uh, making the statements he's made well i think it's pretty grim because obviously senator mansion is the deciding vote in the senate and if he's not going to go for it I don't see how you can force his hand, especially when he represents such a heavily Trump state. Uh, it's not like you can mobilize a grassroots constituency in West Virginia to force him to change his mind. That's simply not gonna happen. His stance is actually very popular, I'm sure, uh, with his voters in West Virginia. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's unfortunate that he is not uh, being more of a profile and courage on this question. And his you know, position is just utterly incoherent because he's basically saying that he doesn't so much object to the specifics of the For the People Act. He objects to the fact that Republicans are not signing on to it because he wants bipartisanship. Well, Republicans have repeatedly shown that they're interested in, in power, not in bipartisanship. So if you're saying that you're interested in bipartisanship above all else, what that means is you are basically giving the Republicans a veto over any legislation that you pass. Now, I mean, Senator Manchin did say that he was more open to the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act than he was to the For the People Act, but you have the exact same problem here because there's only, as far as I know, there's only one Republican senator who has so far expressed support uh, for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. So the only way to pass it is clearly uh, if you're willing to ditch the filibuster or at least suspend the filibuster on this occasion, which Senator Manchin says he's not going to do. 
Um, I, you know, the stance that, that Senator Angus King has taken to my mind makes a lot more sense. And he was interviewed on the Sunday shows, didn't get as much attention as, as Senator Manchin for obvious reasons, but Senator King, who's, as you know, is an, an independent, not even a Democrat, but Senator King said, you know, I believe in bipartisanship, I believe in the filibuster, but if the choice is between democracy and the filibuster, I'm going to choose democracy. And I think that is the choice that, that you have to make. And it's very deeply unfortunate that that is not the choice uh, that Senator Manchin is making. But I would hope that, and I would expect that, that Senator Schumer uh, would at least explore with, with Senator Manchin, are there parts of the For the People Act that he might be willing to to support, even if he doesn't support the whole thing, and certainly he's already, as, as we mentioned, supports the for the, uh, the the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. But again, it, it all comes back to you're not going to get anything done unless you're willing to do something about the filibuster. And if that's going to be, uh, you know, a, a bright line for for uh, for Mansion, that means there's not going to be any voting rights legislation of any kind passed in Washington, which means that all these Republican controlled state legislatures can basically do what they want. And we see what they're doing, which is A, they're restricting the right to vote. As, as you mentioned, in 14 states already, 18 other states are advancing similar legislation, but also keep in mind the gerrymandering, which is gonna be pretty bad, uh, which is going to make it very, very difficult for Democrats to hold on to their slim majority in the house. Uh, and that, you know, that could be the ball game, right? Right, so you have a party out there uh, being very partisan, shutting down, you know, suppre passing suppressive bills and uh, to re repress voting in, in state after state while that they control. And at the same time, they'll control gerrymandering, they have very partisan lines that then in Washington, hey, uh, I'm not going to vote unless it's bipartisan. It's it's like, you know, going into the, uh, they, they're, they're not going to reach back out. But what do you think about the about him pulling enough? I mean, we we do know that he supports the John Lewis Act or Voting Rights Act, and and that there were in the past a lot of Republican senators who signed on to that or something very similar. Would that be enough? I mean, if if Manchin and the and enough uh, uh, senators came across. H.R. 1 didn't pass, but we had the, the voting rights, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act pass. Would that be a strong enough first step? Well, it would certainly be a good first step because that would once again allow the Justice Department to review the racial impact of gerrymandering plans, which would be a serious obstacle to Republican designs uh, in, in all these states that they control. But, and you would think that there would be support for voting rights legislation, which in the past has certainly been a bipartisan issue. But again, I come back to the fact that as far as I know, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska is the only Republican senator who has so far said that they would support the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. I don't see any indication that there are 10 Republican votes to, to move the legislation past the filibuster. I hope I'm wrong. I, I truly hope I'm wrong. This ought to be something that's, that's bipartisan. I mean, remember when, uh, when the Civil Rights Act and, and, the, and the Voting Rights Act were passed in the 1960s, a higher percentage of Republican members of Congress voted for those bills than Democrats. That's, that's a, a proud legacy for the Republican Party, but sadly that has nothing to do with the Republican Party of today, which is increasingly the party of white grievance. Uh, and you know, Trump, and, and, and let's talk for a second here about the influence of Trump, who has made 
willingness to repeat the big lie, a litmus test for the Republican Party. And, to, and, and along with that comes willingness to roll back voting rights. And it's dismaying for me to see that even those few Republicans who are not willing to repeat the big lie, like Liz Cheney, nevertheless support the rollback of voting rights. So I don't have a lot of hope that you're going to be able to achieve a bipartisan compromise with the Republican Party as it currently exists, even given the fact that the Republicans on the Senate are slightly more moderate and, and, and certainly generally less crazy than the ones in the House, it's still going to be, to my mind, a very long uh, uphill struggle, which is ultimately not going to be successful. I saw you said, um, I was watching you on MSNBC a few days ago, I think it was you said this could be the end of American democracy. So I'm still looking at for ways you think we can come out of it. Uh, I saw, you know, you retweeted Perry Bacon talking about his six-point plan to stop the rising tide of the GOP authoritarianism. You know, everything from focused action at the state level to a full-scale national pro-democracy movement. But, you know, where, where do you see, I mean, what are the aspects that you think we need to to take, I mean, again, given that at least right now with uh, Manchin and the filibuster, it doesn't seem like we're likely to get the kind of um, Voting Rights Act. Uh, hopefully, that changes, but it looks pretty bleak. What are any other paths you see to that we need that, or can impact between now and 2022? Well, I don't want to seem like a doomsayer, but I really think right now. The best path is to get legislation through the House and Senate, which the Democrats do control. And obviously, it looks very, very hard to get any legislation through the Senate right now, given Senator Manchin's stance. But I think the odds in the states or in the courts are even worse. I mean, you're talking about a 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court. They've already rolled back uh, voting rights protections. It's hard for me to imagine that they're going to be very active in standing up to this Republican power grab. And then, of course, at the state level, you're talking about all these states where Republicans control both houses of the legislature. So there is really very little you can do. I mean, you can mobilize, you can scream, you need to do what you can. I mean, I admire the the gumption of the of the Democrats uh, in the Texas House of Representatives who walked out of the chamber to prevent the Republican majority from passing restrictions on voting rights. But you know, if the Republicans are determined to get this through, they can do it. They can call a special session. They can get it done. I mean, I, I, I certainly think what the what the Democrats said in Texas is the right thing to do is, is try everything you can within the rules to try to derail this legislation, walk out, you know, uh, cry out, you know, sound the alarm. All those things need to be done. But I, I just think that the outlook is pretty grim uh, if you can't get a piece of legislation through the Senate, because then what you're both basically gambling on is will uh, most Republican members of Congress act in a responsible, small d democratic way? Will they uphold the norms of our system, even if it hurts the Republican Party? And in the past, I would have said, hey, that's a no brainer. I mean, I never had any doubt that, you know, Republicans like Bob Dole or, or John McCain or others. Uh, would put country first. But right now, this current Republican Party, uh, I don't have a lot of faith they're going to put country first. I mean, in fact, you already saw in January that a majority of Republican members of Congress voted to overturn electoral results based on these phony baloney claims of fraud that, that you know, Trump and his minions have 
concocted out of thin air. Uh, so, you know, what happens if uh, for in 2025, when the next Congress has to certify the next presidential election, what happens if at that point, Republicans are in control of both houses of Congress, which is a very real possibility right now. Can we count on enough Republicans to exercise restraint and to uphold loyalty to the Constitution above loyalty to the Republican Party, do the right thing and certify if, if a Democrat wins in 2024, will they certify that, that he's actually, he or she has actually won the election? I mean, maybe they will, but I'm not sure that I would necessarily bet that way right now. Well, then we would have been, one of the things I keep looking at is people's anger kind of like flares up uh, against Manchin and some degree Seneca as well. Uh, cinema, excuse me. It's that, look, if neither of them were there, we'd have Mitch McConnell as as majority leader of the Senate right now. We would have had on January 6th that that nightmare you're talking about where the, the Republican Senate actually would have had control and maybe who knows with, with what the Republicans in the House were doing, uh, how close we came. Um, so on one hand, we've got a few Democrats that aren't going to be look like they're not going to be there on filibuster and voting rights act on the other hand if they weren't there uh we'd be in a we'd have mitch mcconnell right now and no chance of anything right no i think that's right and you want to be careful about you don't want to vilify senator manchin too much because he could very easily flip and if he becomes a republican he flips the senate to republican control makes makes mitch mcconnell the majority leader again no you know that happened before uh the last time uh, it happened was was with Jeffords up in Vermont, who who broke um, with George W. Bush, um, switched parties, became a Democrat um, uh, or a caucus with Democrats, and the majority in, in the U.S. Senate swung from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. Um, you know, and so again, if you vilify Manchin, which by the way helps him politically in his state. Um, the Democrats are attacking him. Um, it doesn't seem like that kind of pressure is going to work and, and could backfire, which, again, just makes it the situation even more dire. Um, you know, Jay Rosen uh, pointed out, you know, that the Republican Party is, you know, now counter majoritarian, but that they also have to be counterfactual and that the, the media actually is playing a role in all this. My friend Nick O'Malley mentioned recently that one of the big problems at these giant media echo chambers, you know, and they kind of play into all this, uh, and that the way to fix it is to go back to talking in the town, town square, you know, having conversations at coffee shops, neighbor to neighbor. Uh, but, you know, the, the first thing is how do we even start that? But the second thing is we had uh, Nick Carmody on the uh, podcast last week. Um, looking at the psych psychology of all this. And he said, that's great, except then you have the talk with your neighbor. They listen to you. They nod. Yeah, you're right. And then they go back home, turn on Tucker Carlson, and they're right back in, uh, you know, and within nanoseconds, they're right back in into the, the cult. Any thoughts about any of that or how? I mean, again, how do we, it seems us as citizens have to somehow have an ability to impact this. I mean, what is it? I think it's it's very, very difficult. One of the few things that I could imagine having a real impact on, on public discourse uh, would be if somehow uh, James Murdoch 
uh, were to become the dominant force at Fox News rather than his brother Lachlan and, and their father Rupert, uh, because Rupert and Lachlan have driven Fox ever further to the right as the Republican Party itself has gone ever further to the right. So the, you know, Fox News just pumps these toxins every single day into the bloodstream of the body politic. I mean, it's, it's poisoning our country. But it's not, I mean, obviously it's not Fox alone. There's also, you know, all the radio talk show hosts. There's all the, you know, bozos on the internet who they all have a massive platform, which is amplified by social media sites like YouTube, uh, like Facebook, and so many others. I do think that Fox is, is, is the leader here. Clearly, it's, it's the dominant media force on the right. And, you know, it, it, it basically promotes the Trumpist party line, which is, you know, one day they're claiming that, uh, that the January 6th attack on the Capitol was just a normal tourist visit. The next day they're claiming that it was, you know, an Antifa false flag op terrorist operation. So they can't, I mean, they're saying things that A, are false and, but B, that are also contradictory. It doesn't seem to matter. It, it's just anything that you believe uh, that, that makes people on the left look bad and people on the right look good, they will believe, they will say it. You don't need any facts. You can just assert it. And so, you know, people, you know, on, who, who watch Fox News are every day being indoctrinated to believe that Joe Biden is senile. He's out of it. He's being manipulated by shadowy left-wing radicals that Vice President Harris is the real decision maker and, and she is some kind of, you know, commie pinko subversive. I mean, just to even describe this, I mean, it's just so lunatic along with their, you know, casting aspersions on, on coronavirus vaccines. Just as a year ago, they were casting doubt as to whether coronavirus was even a threat saying, oh, it's just like a little bit like the flu, no big deal. I mean, this, we've never seen anything like this in this country where you have such a large segment of the population so utterly divorced from reality and being confirmed in their lunatic beliefs by their own media ecosystem. This is truly a dangerous and unprecedented development, but you know, kind of like the assault on voting rights, it's easy to describe the problem and very hard to know how to fix it because of course, all these lunatic uh, uh, right-wing websites and, and, and media channels and others, they all rightly enjoy the protection of the First Amendment just as more responsible media outlets do. I mean, I do think it's important that media sites like social media sites like Facebook and Twitter uh, and YouTube show some responsibility. And, you know, I think banning Trump was the right thing to do because he incited a violent insurrection and knocking off some of the Trumpist uh, insurrectionist accounts as well. Uh, but, you know, it's never going to be enough. There's always going to be these toxins splashing around in our, in our, in our discourse. And, uh, you know, it's just a very worrisome development because, you know, it, it reminds me of, of Pat Moynihan's old line about everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but they're not entitled to their own facts. Well, today, everybody has their own facts. And, uh, you know, if they're in that right-wing echo chamber uh, of Facebook and, and Fox News or heaven help us even Newsmax or One America News or whatever, they're utterly out of touch with reality, but they're utterly certain that what they're hearing is the real story. And it's just very, very hard to break through that bubble. No, and the black mold uh, analogy that I think Matthew Dowd came up with, I think is, 
really fits, right? Because it's black mold, it's growing. And, you know, as he says, you can't negotiate with black mold. (laughs) You know, so, uh, which is, then then we're right back into the questions about what Manchin thinks he can accomplish by talking uh, to people who are afraid of the black mold. I mean, part of the problem now is that the leadership in the Republican Party knows it can't survive without its black mold voters. Um, if they kill them, if they kill the black mold in the party, they're, they, they're all going to lose. But it's, it's not even 100% cynical. I mean, for some of them, it is cynical. But there's increasingly, you know, black mold members of Congress. I mean, you have complete, you know, lunatics like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Or, but you also have, you know, complete cynics like, uh, like Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton or Ted Cruz, who we all think they should know better because they're well-educated. But whether they know better or not, they've, they've certainly bought into this black mold ideology because they think that's what's going to, uh, you know, make them realize their personal ambitions. I, I was going to say, and, and we, we saw that, I think there was one, there's something came across this weekend. They asked voters in MTG's district, like how she's doing. I think they asked about the Holocaust thing, comment that she made. And most of them said, you know, I, I didn't really see that. Because remember, that's the left, what they perceive as the left-wing media blowing that up. So they just ignore that. And they're just saying, I just like that she's going in there to shake things up. Right. Or I like her approach. Right. So there's this disconnect between what we're all up in arms about and these voters. And this isn't their fault even. They're not even seeing this. And it's not a secret. All you have to do is look at Marjorie Taylor Greene's Twitter account, all, it's not like it's being invented by the New York Times. You just read the damn Twitter account. All the lunacy is right there in plain sight. But the other thing is, that, which sort of brings up, is the, you know, there's, it's hard. A lot of what the 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 black mold uh, is based on and that Trump did was, you know, really make everybody uh, use fear. Right, use fear, something that would scare the daylights out of them, uh, to get them to to coalesce around his candidacy and his agenda, uh, and constantly for since you know he came down the escalator, um, invoke as much fear, uh, anger, division as possible. The and so a lot of the problem I see is that there are a lot of Democrats who and other Americans who who are still in the, it can't happen here. Democracy can't fail here. This is America. It's not going to happen. And that it's very difficult to, to get enough people to be just as afraid that their democracy is about to be lost to the Trumpies. I mean, in other words, this is like, it's kind of like some can't, that's crazy. The same thing that made us, a lot of us think Trump can't get elected is the same thing. It's sort of creating this blind spot for Manchin. I mean, maybe Manchin has it too, where this isn't as dire as everybody says it is. And so there you, you know Trump and them are going to continue to bang on, you know, defund the police and every, you know, and socialist uh, pedophile, you know, leaders um, and uh you know, in hordes at the border and caravans, all these things, while a lot of what we're talking about is the fear of losing who, you know, who we are as Americans in our system. And that's unfathomable to a lot of people, right? You know, you know, I mean, it's just, that's a hard, 
thing to get people as energized. I mean, there are plenty, trust, you know, we see that. Um, there are a lot of people out there fighting this, but I think that really well could be what we're facing in 2022 is one party totally partisaned up, doing whatever means necessary, and another party still trying to argue logically about policy that we're, you know, that it's not as dire as we think, and then people who are screaming, no, it is, it is dire, and that we're actually splintered and can't, actually kind of one of the things I've been saying for a long time, we've got to do both things. We've got to try to reach out to as many Republican women to the other side as we can, you know, bring over who haven't fallen into the black mold yet, and at the same time, do everything we can to energize Democrats, independents, anybody out there that, yeah, democracy at stake, you got to come out, you got you, you to gotta fight. The whole time knowing the voters or the Republicans are going to try to suppress that with, with legislation. Yeah, I feel, I feel like there's kind of a failure of imagination here. And in, 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 in the sort of the analogy that, that comes to my mind is the, uh, you know, 2000 at September 9, September 11, 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, because that was actually one of the findings of, uh, of the after action report was that, you know, part of the reason we weren't prepared for that was just a failure of imagination. We couldn't imagine that somebody should, could, could pull off such an audacious act of terrorism. And we should have known better because we had, we had, a, we had, a, you know, we had plenty of warnings. There are plenty of clues you could put together, including the fact that in 1993, Al-Qaeda previously attempted to bring down the World Trade Center, but we just did not take the threat seriously. And, you know, I, I feel like we may be suffering from a similar failure of imagination today. I, I sort of feel like the January 6th attack on the Capitol could be analogized to the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center. The attack failed, but it should have been a warning, a wake-up call for us that, you know, something that we have previously thought as unimaginable is very, very possible. And we can't just discount the possibility that the next time around the attack will fail. I mean, I, you know, it's the combination of the of the storming of the Capitol and Republicans, a majority of, of, of Republicans voting to overturn electoral votes. That's, I really feel like we've crossed a Rubicon there that I never thought we would cross. And, you know, that's why I wrote this column last week saying, wake up, you know, there's this nightmare scenario that Republicans could actually steal the 2024 presidential election. And if that were to be the case, we would basically stop being a democracy. I mean, this is not something I ever imagined I would be saying, but right now this is a real possibility. And, and, I, and I hope I'm being overly alarmist, but I fear I'm not. And in fact, pretty much the same thing was just said by hundreds of, of academics who study democracy, including several past presidents, the American Political Science Association. They said the exact same thing I'm saying. We gotta, we gotta get alarmed here. We gotta get worried. We gotta get mobilized uh, because we can see the threat coming down the tracks. Uh, but right now, we're just not doing enough to derail it. You know, it, it's funny you, you say that. I, I was about to ask you, put on your national security hat for a second. What do you see as the biggest threat to America right now, like worldwide? And do you think it might be what the GOP is doing right now? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I think the the, the old, uh, you know, I think it was Mr. Dooley line about we have met the enemy and, and they is us. Uh, we we are our own worst enemies at this point. I think, you know, we certainly confront real enemies out in the greater world, whether it's, you know, Islamic State or Al-Qaeda, Russia, Iran, China, North Korea, there's no shortage of external enemies. 
But, you know, I have enough faith in America that we can handle those enemies if we can get our own act together and if we're reasonably united. But right now, we are just deeply, deeply divided. Um, and you saw the result of our division was dysfunction under Trump where, you know, we, we let the coronavirus rage out of control. Things are improving better, are, are improving somewhat now because we have better leadership. We have rational leadership in Washington, but we still have a deeply divided country. I mean, there was just a poll that came out which showed that 53% of Republicans still regard Donald Trump as, quote, the rightful president of the United States. I mean, that is a deeply divided, deeply screwed up country. I mean, just the level of partisan division, the level of Republican uh, attacks on democracy and, 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 and hostility to science, fact, and reason, uh, these are all, I, this is what I regard as, as the biggest threat to the future of the United States. Well, and also that's saying, I think it's either the same poll or, or one that came out similar timing that said that, that one in six Americans think that they, they, need, they, they may need to uh, resort to violence to put the rightful leaders in place you know, that the storm's coming and I'm going to be a part of it, or I may need to be part of it. Uh, so, I mean, it, when you when you add, even if it's not 50% or, you know, but w even if you're in that 15 to 20% range of people who think that the, not just the 51% who think that uh, Joe Biden's not the legitimate president, but that uh, a, a pretty sizable portion of that group thinks violence is, is necessary to, to right that wrong, that's that's a pretty scary thing. Um, I, you know, I, I do want to take a minute and talk about the road not taken. Uh, your book, you know, discussing you know, someone a lot of Americans probably aren't that familiar with Edward Lansdale, who who tried to win hearts and minds in Vietnam. I, the reason I want to talk about it though is, you know, one of the lessons that we can take from that is that you know. The idea that no insurgency can be resisted if it's got popular support, and so you, you sort of have this weird insurgency in the U.S. now on the Republican side. I mean, sort of eating the black mold insurgency, if you will. Um, so I wanted you to talk about the book, and also, if, you know, if there's any insights into that at all about how what we're facing today, not just here, but in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other places. Well, the book, The Road Not Taken, was about Edward Lansdale, this extraordinary covert operative uh, who uh, represented America in the Philippines and then in South Vietnam in the 1950s. And he was one of the uh, early developers of what we now call counterinsurgency doctrine, the notion that uh, the way you defeat an uprising is not by killing guerrillas or killing their leaders, but by protecting the population, winning over the population, and then working with the population uh, to address their concerns and therefore to deny the insurgents' uh, support. And this is, you know, basically the formula that has been applied and successfully in other uh, counterinsurgency fights down through the years. Now, there's a lot more in the book than that, obviously. There is also, uh, you know, the failure of the U.S. to listen to Edward Lansdale in the 1960s as we embarked on this massive conventional war in Vietnam that he warned about. There's also Ed Lansdale's uh, love story uh, to uh, Pat Kelly, this Filipino woman he met while he was still married to his first wife and, and the epic romance they had and, uh, and how that informed uh, Lansdale about what was going on in the Philippines. So 
you know, there's 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 a lot of things in 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 the book that are of interest. But one of the things that jumps out at me is uh, the fact that Edward Lansdale was such a big believer in American democracy, and he really believed that this was kind of our secret weapon in the battle against communism. That you know, they the other side in the Cold War was trying to uh, spread dictatorship, and we were we were we were spreading freedom, and he thought that that would be ultimately more appealing, and that we could. Uh, we could win support from people in the Philippines or South Vietnam or elsewhere by saying we we stand for the Declaration of Independence, we stand for the Constitution, we stand for the rule of law, for freedom, and that's and, and we don't want to impose our will on you. We just want to help you to become free. And and you know that to me is, I, I mean it was it was a it was a nice idea which wasn't always implemented obviously and and, and obviously the way we often behaved in in, in and did horrible things in, in countries like Vietnam, which which Ed Lansdale was aghast by. But you know, at its finest, I think that really represents the best of America. That uh, is 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 uh, our own fight for a more perfect union at home, overcoming centuries of racism, oppression, slavery, and other ills, and trying to become a, a more just and uh, and fair country uh, with with rights for all. But also, you know, our role in exporting democracy abroad. But I, you know, I, I wouldn't be here sitting here talking with you today uh, if it weren't for America's role as a great uh, bastion of freedom. Because you know, I was born in the Soviet Union back when it was still a communist dictatorship. My family and I came here in 1976, the, the bicentennial year. Like so many millions of other immigrants, we were welcomed by the United States, and I think that. And the ideals that the United States represents have always inspired me. I think they've always inspired lots of people around the world, many who are very far from our shores. And that was certainly what, what Ed Lansdale saw as, as the secret of American power uh, abroad was the, was the attraction of our ideals. And, and my concern is that those ideals have been badly dented over the last four plus years when we saw this uh, this uh, this uh, Trump regime uh, that preached America first, that cozied up to dictators, that trashed our democratic allies, that in fact trashed democracy at home, uh, that engaged in in blatant racism and nativism, really doing damage uh, to our ideals. And and what was most dispiriting about that was to see how many Americans love that. I mean, I thought I never thought Trump would win the presidency because I thought what he stood for was so repugnant. Uh, to most of my fellow Americans, and sadly, I was wrong. And despite, and, and the most damning thing I think you can say about the United States is that, despite everything that happened in Trump's presidency, and I, I believe it was probably the worst presidency in our history. I mean, it, it wound up with 400,000 dead Americans, the economy in shambles. Despite all of that, Trump still won 11 million more votes in 2020 than he won in 2016. That, to me, is a very damning indictment of American democracy. And I think that's something that people around the world see and they wonder, you know, like I wonder myself, you know, is this the country that we thought it was or is this a very different country? Has it become this isolationist, nativist, uh, this place that, that, that many of us don't recognize, but is that the new America? And I think, you know, the fact that, that, that Biden won and, and the fact that Democrats, the control of the, of the Senate, are small indicators of hope, but I think the, the battle remains, you know, very much to be decided. It's not clear what the future of America is. That the Trumpist movement is very powerful. Trump is back on the 
on the stump. He still has the support of roughly 80% of Republicans. So, you know, we don't know where this country is going. And I think it's really a battle between the worst of America and the best of America. And in the past, I would have been pretty confident that the best of America would prevail at, at the moment. I just don't have that that same confidence. I just, you know, somebody like Ed Lansdale, I mean, you can say, you know, thank goodness he's not around to see this because it would really, he was, there's there's no bigger believer in, in America and Americanism. And, uh, you know, I think these these events would have been very dispiriting for him to see. Well, on that note, Max, I mean, I think that's a good way to end the, the podcast today. I mean, for all of you listeners who are in the fight, who do get how uh, important it is, thanks for listening to us today. And, and Max, thank you for coming on. Uh, uh, really insightful stuff. I do urge people to uh, read The Road Not Taken, though. I mean, I, I've read several of Max's books. That one really hit me uh, with a lot of powerful insights that I, I think are important to think through uh, in the world today, as is The Corrosion of Conservatism, which also is, a, I think, a must-read. We'll, we'll include a link for his books, The Corrosion of Conservatism and The Road Not Taken on Amazon in our show notes. We'll be back next Friday at our usual time. As usual, if you have a race you want us to spotlight or question, please submit it on iTunes in the review section or email us at thattrippyshow at gmail.com. Thanks, Max, and see you all next Friday.